I'm tired of smoking my problems away. I'm tired of drinking my pain all away. I want some help, God, now send it my way. I'm about to leave cause I don't wanna stay. Life bringing me down. Somehow I'm still around. I smile, I do not frown. I'm king, I wear a crown. But what do I do now? I've come this far, but how? God, please tell me how. I need your power.
Welcome to another episode of Renew Talk. It's Elaine Janelle here on the mic tonight. And we're talking about gentrification, a popular word that we hear a lot. But with all of that being said, we're talking about helpful or hurtful, is it? Our scripture, theme scripture tonight comes from Genesis 23, 3 and 4. And we're talking about Abraham. The scripture says, then rose. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site. So here, here, so I can bury my dead. Explanation of the scripture is when Sarah passed, Abraham did not own property. And though he was a well-known man and he was given a promise from God that he would make that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Referenced in Genesis twenty two seventeen, Abraham remained humble in the burial of his wife and purchased property that could have been given to him freely. This reference comes from owning our role in gentrification by the Bible and the Bible by John Huckins. So I just find it interesting because Abraham really, really chose to be humble and to learn something in the process of purchasing property when honestly it could have been given to him he had that right and even leaning on the promises of god he could have felt like he was entitled to it realizing that he walked he was a man of god and walked in humility something that we could probably take into consideration when purchasing property now just to share some little bit of things related to gentrification before i have my lovely guests join us Gentrification, the process of repairing and building homes and businesses in a deteriorating area such as an urban neighborhood accompanied by an influx of middle class or affluent people and that often results in the displacement of earlier, usually poor residents. That is the definition of gentrification. Would you agree? Do you agree? Questions. Things to think about. This terminology, gentrification, was coined in the 60s by a British sociologist named Ruth Glass, referring to some things that she saw taking place in her inner London community. You know what I find very interesting? Gentrification is not new. Um, Though we're seeing it and the name has become ever so popular now amongst our community, Gentrification itself is not new. It's been around for years, even before the 60s. And the truth of the matter is, we didn't know. We were using different terminology. And we're going to reference some of those things in the conversation tonight. So, as you have already listened to some great music coming from my boy, Mr. Thomas. Yes, also known as Simone. Check out his music. I had him on my second episode of A New Talk. And he has been touring this country left and right now, um, making noise making good noise <laughs> and his sound is calling causing many people to follow him so if anything as you're checking out this episode check out the second episode of renew talk where i interviewed him before his music began to blow up and check out you know his newest album omen it's different um if you can't handle any cussing you might not want to buy it <laughs> but if you find a song that you like like the one i've played at the beginning of the so- show Precious that, okay? All right. And coming up, I pulled out one of my oldies but goodies. It's a group out of New York called True Praise. And it's just a great song. I've had it around for a good while. And I love supporting independent artists. That is the heart 
of Renewed Talk is supporting independent artists and is supporting independent brands and independent businesses. So keep it locked right here. And if you like the music you're hearing and you love the conversation, then like what you hear on our podcast. Like it on SoundCloud, like it on iTunes, like it on Player FM. We are here to help you. It's Elaine Janelle here on the mic. Keep it locked right here as we enjoy a conversation with our guests, Mr. Marvin James and Mr. Joe Carroll.
wonderful guests, handsome, because they're both men, praise the Lord, guests on this evening. We have Mr. Marvin James and Mr. Joe Carroll. Um, I guess I should go alphabetical order. Who wants to introduce themselves first? <laughs> Since you say alphabetical order, I don't know if by first name or last name, but I'm You Joe can go Carroll. by last name because your last name will be first. <laughs> I'm Joe Carroll. Um, I've lived in the District of Columbia for 12 years. Um, I've worked in real estate that entire time uh, for large firms as well as um, now for myself. Um, I have uh, worked on projects in um, predominantly African-American um, uh, uh, neighborhoods as well as predominantly um, non-African-American neighborhoods, as well as uh, up and down the economic spectrum. Um, and um, I've done that for the full 12 years I've been here. And I also, I live in what could be um, considered a gentrified neighborhood, uh, greater Columbia Heights. Um, and I've lived there for uh, 11 years. Um, and um, that's basically sort of the perspective, those three perspectives are what I bring to the table. Awesome. And you, Mr. James? Uh, so, uh, thank you so much for uh, inviting me, Elaine. Uh, of course, my name is Marvin James. Uh, I am an advocate, a campaign professional. Uh, I am stationed now, currently, in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. We're working on Stacey Abrams' campaign. We're working now for about 12 years, uh, developing, pushing, candidates into power structures uh, to be able to speak for underserved communities uh, here in the city of now, but specifically in the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore. This is a serious topic that deserves much discussion and really does speak to large issues, larger issues than I'll presently talk about at surface. So I'm excited to be able to discuss and have a conversation about it. Okay. I am glad that both of you can be a part tonight. I'm also glad because both of you, I know, have busy schedules, so I respect that. Um, with that being said, I also wanted to ask, the way I film out the actual full episode that is on SoundCloud, I am going to explain the, the actual definition of what justification is. Um, basically founded by a young lady out of London. But can you two give me your um, de your definitions, um, whether it's by the book or what you have accumulated through your time of serving the community and learning people and learning the community um, overall? Margaret can go first since Joe went first last time. I'll <laughs> navigate that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the reality of it is, is that, of course, uh, by definition, uh, gentrification in itself is talking about an effusion of uh, quote-unquote middle-class values or middle-class people into a either underserved or uh, uninhabited area uh, for level growth, right? However, though, uh, the modern connotation of what has taken place uh, under the term or definition of gentrification it's really the antithesis of what uh, what has become associated with the antithesis of white flight, right? So uh, for myself, personally, uh, it is my belief 
right, that gentrification in its modern context is really about the overdevelopment and infusion of displaced values of culture in a present culture. Um, and so that's really what gentrification means to me in its modern context. Mm-hmm. Joe, would you share? Yeah, um, obviously, like I said, since I'm I'm coming from the private uh, sector, um, I think gentrification has sort of two sort of um, I guess lanes. One would be um, densification, um, which is you know um, many of our cities became under depopulated as a result of white flight. And it's the repopulation of those areas, uh, which I think, as um, Mr. James uh, points out, um, brings with it certain values and cultural changes. Um, but uh, in a many in many instances, it's just a return of the same density that we were at pre 1960s. Um, in some instances, as he points out, um, it's over densification, uh, meaning that um, it's upzoned tremendously um, such that the density um, uh, surpasses pre-1960s levels. Um, Then uh, I think uh, the second one is more, like I said, on the cultural plane. Um, I think the term itself, the the gentrification part, uh, comes from, I think, Latin, gentrifugenus or something, Mm -hmm. uh, meaning the repeopling. So that is to say um, that there weren't people there before, which I my, myself um, take offense to. Um, right, so right. that the whole idea of the return of people um, is, I think, um, is a little offensive within itself. And I think it has taken on a life of its own, as, as Mr. James uh, points out, um, to become a very negative thing. Um, I don't think it necessarily has to be negative, but governments and institutions and stuff have to take care to make sure it's not negative. Um, I remember, Joe, you sharing me identification before. And mm-hmm. um, that's one of the reasons why I did want you to share that on the show because I know it's not a commonly thing heard um, within the community in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but since we're specifically talking about gentrification and the fact that it came about, I feel like, this is what I personally feel out, and this is why I'm doing this topic. I personally feel like gentrification has always been around. We just put a name to it. Or somebody put a name to it. But I believe that it was always been around. And the reason I said that in talking with my parents, I'm born and raised in West Philadelphia. And when they were born and raised in West Philadelphia and Southwest Philadelphia, their communities were majority Caucasian. There were some black people in their communities, but quite a bit of their communities had a lot of Jewish people in the communities. Mm-hmm. They owned a lot of the businesses on the strip of 52nd Street in the community. Now 52nd Street has become majority, majority African-American, but now we're gaining Caucasian neighbors. And so the circle has now come around again, but the terminology was not really known until maybe the 60s, as you have mentioned. My question to you, um, and Joe, please tell me where you're from, because I know you've been in D.C. last 12 years. Where are you from again? Yeah, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, originally. Okay, so let me t- ask you both this question. <laughs> being from Jacksonville, Florida, and being from Baltimore, Maryland, um, what were your communities like in growing up? Just share a little bit of your personal, not too much, but what you feel comfortable sharing with us, with the public. Mm-hmm. So I'll start, um, I grew up in a majority African-American um, neighborhood. 
both when my grandparents are based in Jacksonville and both sets of grandparents and my parents. Um, My grandparents lived more in the inner um, city and we lived more in the suburbs, but both of them, both of the communities were majority African-American. As far as schooling, up until uh, elementary and junior high, I went to majority, early junior high, I went to majority African-American. And then um, we went um, to a magnitude system due to a desegregation plan. And there I went to probably like a 60, 40, 60% um, majority and and, um, 40% African-American school. I bring up schools because I think that's the undercurrent of the gentrification um, conversation as well. And I think both contexts are relevant in this conversation. And Marvin, do share where you grew up in Baltimore. So, of course, growing up in the city of Baltimore, it is a predominantly African-American city. And one of the blessings, of course, of being in the community uh, that I grew up in is is that, of course, um, it was a middle-class community uh, filled with uh, middle-class professionals, persons that uh, were teachers, uh, trash collectors, uh, you might have one person who was a lawyer or a doctor who decided to kind of stay in that community for whatever reason they chose uh, to be connected to that community. Uh, and uh, because of that, right, there was always this ethos inside of that community uh, that allowed cultural values uh, and things that were important uh, to either African Americans uh, or even other diverse uh, persons that were inside of the community. Right. That be uh, the local restaurant uh, that catered to uh, African American right. uh, tastes, right? It, uh, we really had uh, the best of both worlds, right? We, of course, uh, had everything that any other urban sprawl community uh, would have, whether that be you know, crime, low-income residents. However, though, we also had this kind of homogenous part of us as well that we were literally thriving to try to be better and uh, more unhappy persons to kind of create a better community. Uh, So I really kind of got the best of both worlds. Right. Um, And both of you sharing, I I feel like we all come from a very stable background. parents who are, if they did not go to college, whatever, it didn't even matter. They were stable people who had a job and were into raising their families as um, as a whole. Mm-hmm. Something's clicking. I don't know what's clicking, but just to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, who raised their families in a stable area. Did you feel like there was a need for a change when you were growing up? And so, I'm, I'm directing this from personal to more political nicely. I just, just go with me for a few minutes. <laughs> That's um, Marvin. You want to go first, or uh, sure. So I mean, I think that of course, any of course that question is very broad. Uh, it is very broad. Itself. So take take it as as broad for reason. So take it as you will. I'll take it as it is, though. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think that you can ask that question uh, to any. A human being or person, and they would say that my community 
is absolutely uh, at its best. Mm -hmm. And that's regardless of whether uh, we live in Point Porter, where I'm presently from, whether I'm polished park or whether I'm in Buckhead. Uh, there are always things that people want uh, to do better in their community. So to, to directly answer your question, I believe that, of course, there are different dynamics that absolutely would have made better community mm -hmm. across the board uh, for those uh, from where I'm from um, in, you know, in the city of Baltimore. Uh, however, though, what I will say is, is that, of course, uh, as a child and then uh, coming into my adulthood, that there were definitely, there was never a time where I felt as though that my community or anything that I was a part of uh, needed to drastically change. I do believe that, of course, there were things that needed to happen from a governmental standpoint, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. that would be better for my community. Right. But as far as, um, you know, the person or the people that were on my block, uh, you know, I wouldn't probably have changed it for the world uh, because those uh, people, those who were there, they absolutely kind of created uh, the sense of community. You know, me and those who were on that particular block. You can answer now, uh, Joe. And I know the question's very void, so, but I just want to no, see the dynamics. Okay. It's okay. Um, this is interesting because I think um, my answer will kind of dovetail into why I think I came into doing the business that I do now. Okay. Um, as I grew older in those communities, there started to be a tremendous amount of stress on retail. So I remember being younger and the grocery store was right around the corner and you know we had clothing stores and things of that nature. And as I got older, those shops started to close. I still don't understand to this day. I mean, I'll, obviously, I have to think with my child mind, not my adult mind, mm -hmm. of why those things closed. But all of a sudden, we were in a food desert. All of a sudden, we didn't have clothing stores. All of a sudden, and it was jarring, right, um, as, a, as an individual. And I have a couple of developments that were um, supposed to come to our neighborhood that later didn't get financing or whatever. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, like I said, those stores, those grocery stores, those, I mean, according to what community it is for us, I think it was Winn-Dixie closed and it never reopened. And, you know, in other neighborhoods, it's Safeway or Giant or whomever right, right. closed and never reopened. And I don't know, I mean, I can theorize. I just don't want to theorize because people could, you know, track and say, oh, no, that store didn't close for that reason. Right. I can theorize why it closed. But that left those communities very challenged, where now people had to commute long distances to, do, to, to, to interact with the community like they once did. Um, and even like um, the types of restaurants, I think sit-down restaurants began to disappear. They began to be replaced by um, fast food restaurants. Um, uh, clothing stores started being replaced by dollar stores. And all of this changed over time. Okay. And like I said, um, that was the change I saw probably from about eight or nine to about 18 when I left Jacksonville. And I kind of still see the remnants of that. If you don't mind today. me asking, what, what time period was that? Just random. Oh. <laughs> Not, don't so, tell you about the age. It's just, <laughs> so it's that just would be the, the 80s versus the 90s. Okay. Right? The, the, the mid 80s versus the early to mid-90s 90s. Okay. would be the, t the time that this kind of all occurred. 
Okay. And so in that question being so broad, um, the reason why I asked it is because I think people tend to think that we need help. <laughs> Save the urban community. Um, and I am one of those people who actually does not like the word urban because I think urban is automatically put towards a black set of people. So if somebody says, you're real urban, I'm just like, are you... <laughs> I'm not sure if right. they're trying to say that I'm ghetto or what are you trying to say? So I don't actually even like that word. I don't say I'm from the city and I prefer just to say I'm from the city. Um, <laughs> I mean, y'all can share that connotation. That's just a personal connotation that I have. Um, but with that being said, I think a lot of people thought that we needed help. And so on the show, I wanted to show, share and show that it was more the dynamic of we enjoyed the communities that we lived in, though there were things that needed to be changed. We all could say we enjoyed the communities they lived in mm -hmm. and that what what was there and brought to the people. Mm -hmm. My question is, is in seeing the gentrification in your communities or seeing it happen in other cities, um, do you see it necessarily as a hurtful event or do you see that there could be a balance if worked at it? And so um, the reason I ask this question is because I feel like I am, in a weird way, a part of the gentrification in D.C. I'm not from D.C. I came here for work. There's a lot of people's stories with D.C. D.C. is the transient city. I hear it all the time that a lot of people come here for a period of time and they leave to go somewhere else or they go back home. And so my question then to you is, from seeing it um, in their point, um, do, do we think it's hurtful? Do you think it's help, helpful? Or is there a medium that we could possibly meet at um, and how would we do that? Do explain. Um, yeah. um, I'll tell you what I don't like. I, I don't like the sort of erasing of culture um, that we're seeing um, in many communities. And um, I think that's difficult to put one's hand on. Um, but we know it when we see it, as uh, some of the Supreme Court's court justices say. <laughs> um, just... So that turning over of retail and cultural institutions that feel like they have to move as a result of gentrification. So churches leaving the inner city, urban, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. um, you know, restaurants, businesses leaving for suburban locations. Now, there are a lot of economic reasons about that, um, but I just want to point out just the cultural point. And then the other is particularly, um, it, it was actually good that you said about the years. So if you think of my parents or my grandparents, um, now they are 60, 70, 80, 90. They're in these communities and they're being displaced um, because of gentrification. So that's the other um, downside. I personally um, am a little bit more liberal on the agency of people that are, you know, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, um, and sort of, they make certain economic decisions. Like if I decide to sell my house, mm -hmm. I may decide to sell my house and move to Prince George's or whatever I want to do, but I don't want it to be where when you're dealing with someone over 55, 60, 65, and your retirement age or over, oftentimes they're forced out. Um, so it's sort of a balance, because if you look at just the statistics, you'll say, oh, this many people sold their house, but some of those people were looking to sell their house for whatever reason, right? right. But some of those people were forced out and teasing out between the two, 
I think it's important. So I think the cultural and just the wholesale displacement of um, some of our mothers and fathers, and I mean in that broader sense, like our, our older generation, mm-hmm. I think is extremely uh, troubling for me. Marvin. So first, I think that um, there is an academic conversation about gentrification that has been happening probably for about the last 30 or 40 years because there has been this, as I said at the beginning, this return of quote-unquote suburbanites back to urban sprawled cities. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we're seeing it everywhere, whether it is in uh, St. Louis, whether it is in Atlanta, whether it is in Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, San Francisco, Houston, Dallas. uh, We're seeing where persons are willing and wanting to be close to their corporate centers. They want to be close to public transportation. They want to be close uh, to airports. And of course, for the majority of all of those things that I just mentioned, they are centered around uh, in uh, urban areas, downtown uh, based city areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, With that being said, I think that one of the main topics that is often, for whatever reason, especially when it is discussed in the halls of academia about gentrification is the lack of um, or really just this whole narrative of economic exclusion within underserved communities. And the reason that gentrification is really even a thing mm-hmm. is because there really is a lack of real fundamental economic planning for poor and underserved communities. This is just, just keeping it very much 100, mm-hmm. right? Um, poor people uh, are, of course, extremely immense, immense, or pulled into poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, uh, there are so many articles, but the Wall Street article, uh, Wall Street Journal did an article that in order for a family to climb out of poverty, they would have to go 20 years, this is very important, 20 years without it coming into contact with any type of emergency. So that could be your grandmother dying, that could be no, you know, level finances hitting your, any one of your immediate family members, right? Cousin Jojo can't go to jail so that you gotta bail them out, right? There really is this long step and steep to you getting out of poverty. And so what ends up happening is that these communities are structured into a place of where they literally have been put in a place, whether it's by systemic oppression, Baltimore is famous, uh, as well as Philadelphia, as well as um, New York City, of this thing called redlining, right? Which was that the majority of these cities uh, and the way that they were placed and the way uh, that they were drawn was so that uh, the majority of African-Americans would be put into one section of a city. Uh, There are houses in the city of Baltimore right now uh, in sections of Park Heights. The Baltimore Sun did an article about how they had rehabbed uh, a slew of houses across a brand new elementary school. And they 
rehab these entire houses. And the reason that that's very important and the reason that that's um, very interesting is that government is normally not in the business of rehabbing houses. Uh, they might provide money to developers or they might provide money uh, to citizens to do the rehabbing. However, they themselves are not in the business of rehabbing. They did all of that. They provided money, they, did all, uh, they rehab the houses, and they are unable to sell these houses. Are well below. Um, they have all of the great uh, things that you see in gentrified areas, right? Stainless steel appliances, hardwood floors, updated, um, you know, wiring, all of these things. Uh, and however, they're unable to sell those houses. Uh, and once again, like I said, it's 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 across from a brand new elementary school. These are the type of things that quote unquote, right, would absolutely sell. Uh, and Joe is in the business of, you know, real estate. Um, if you take any, you know, incoming quote unquote family, you show them this is stuff that they would love to have. However, though, uh, because there are larger structural things that are at, um, that are in power that often creates these microcosms or bubbles, mm -hmm. uh, issues are not talked about um, at a certain level. Right. And it keeps, um, it keeps persons who are in those neighbors structured, um, in those neighborhoods structured literally in poverty until, right, until there are persons who have made up their mind, uh, whether that be <laughs> whether that be developers, um, whether that be uh, a group of people, that this community uh, is going to quote-unquote round be better. Yes. I think that, um, to, to of course, I took this long highway to get to your answer to tell you. No, it's you good, it's good. It's, it's so much larger than just about whether or not it's, good or bad for a community, right? I don't think anybody will tell you that gentrification um, in its correct context uh, is bad, right? People want great homes, they want great property values, they want great schools. No one's gonna tell you that it's bad. Um, however, though, uh, that the moment that we displace our cultural values, which are often associated with minority neighborhoods before it is quote unquote gentrified, mm -hmm. it is why uh, there's so visceral attitude uh, towards gentrification. Right. And before Joe, before you start, that's exactly why I brought up the question because I was like, I can't side. I can't side with hurtful. I can't side with faithful. Who wants to live in a trash house when you couldn't live in a better mm -hmm. house? Who wants to live in a house that looks like it was built in the 60s and still acts as if it's the 60s versus living in a house that was remodeled in 2000 or 2010. Mm -hmm. Like, come on, let's just be real about the situation. Mm -hmm. um, but I think naturally, as soon as those who are in the African or even Hispanic community, when we got the concept of gentrification, I've heard people become very hateful towards it without having a clear understanding of what's even happening. They just... <laughs> well, it, Go ahead. It, 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 well, that's because it, it, it just happens. So the, I was in, uh, I, I live in East Baltimore and I'm proud to be and I live in East Baltimore. I live downtown now. Uh, however, though, I was uh, at a fundraiser for one of my friends uh, who was running for delegate uh, in Maryland General Assembly. We were on 
uh, uh, Jefferson Street. Uh, Jefferson has absolutely, predominantly, has always been African-American, low underserved community. It is about five or seven blocks from John Hopkins University. Um, of course, there is a whole conversation and dialogue about John Hopkins University that yeah. I won't even remotely get into this, right. this uh, because that can be a whole five, you know, renewed talk broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. However, though, I'll never forget, you know, all of us, we sitting outside, we're talking, um, you know, that we're enjoying ourselves, we're being loud, boisterous, as we always are. And something happens. And when this happens, and when I tell you what's about to happen, shifts not only our entire thinking, um, we just all become flabbergasted because we don't know what just happened. And what just happened was is that a white woman was walking her dog on Jefferson Street at about 7.30 at night, and it's dark. <laughs> and we're all right. there. Because in all of the years that we've lived on Jefferson Street, mm-hmm. we have, number one, never seen a white woman never after especially mm-hmm. after the um, hours mm-hmm. of 5 p.m. And she surely wasn't walking her white dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were all flabbergasted. And we're sitting there trying to figure out what is going on. And we're not trying to figure out what's going on because we clearly are um, oblivious to the fact that white people live in the city of Baltimore. It is the fact that in all of our years of living in East Baltimore, and mm-hmm. mind you, we're talking about Lakewood and Monument, we're talking about in the heart. These are, you know, this is this is where literally, if you pulled up crime statistics, probably in the last two or three months, you know, five to 15 people have been shot, right? This is, this is the heart of East Baltimore. To see a white woman walking her dog was very, it was breathtaking. <laughs> it, what's going on? But it caused it. It caused us to go into reflection mm-hmm. about everything that's happening on the outside, which is literally three blocks down the road. Right. Right. Yeah. There are homes that are being absolutely rehabbed and are selling for about three to four hundred thousand dollars. Right. 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 This is this is at the heart of where that visceral attack comes for re- uh, for gentrification. It is not towards the persons that are doing gentrification. Mm-hmm. It is literally the fact that there were renters that have been in those homes for about 10, 15, 20 years, as sad as that is. Mm-hmm. And they were never probably given the economic plan or economic option, yeah, yeah, right? Right. To possibly own that home, right? Uh, yeah. So I would agree with him. I think the the, the interesting thing is um, the question is: Does gentrification happen to or happen for our communities? That's right? good. Go ahead. Um, and understanding, getting into the politics of it and getting into the institutional part of it, because uh, he mentioned John Hopkins, he mentioned, uh, I mentioned churches earlier. Right. All of these institutions play a role yes, they do. in knowing what's coming mm-hmm. and making sure that people are informed, because part mm-hmm. of it is people are just not informed. It hits them like 
a wave, right? They, they, there's been community meetings in this in this community for years. I never go to them, whatever, whoever the person is, person X in this community. And then before they know it, here comes the wave and they have not been a part of the process. Um, and so the happening to versus the happening for mm-hmm. is a big question. And how do we, um, as, as people, like I say, even me as a, as I strive to be a more conscientious developer. Sometimes I feel like I don't have the tools to do what I would normally want to do. Okay. Um, you know, because th- once again, gentrification is happening to and not for our communities. And um, similarly, I live off of Georgia Avenue, as you may be aware in DC. And gentrification. Um, yes. So, so you know. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw um, uh, white people at the Banneker pool, which is across from Howard. I was the same thing. I was just <laughs> done. I was I, that changed my entire day, my entire outlook. That you know, given as we know, it's a whole big long history about city pools with black and white people, right? right and right. the idea that they would be going to Banneker pool was just like. You know that that so I had the same sort of jarring experience experience that uh, Marvin did about that. You know, and and seeing the community continue to change beyond that. And once again, this is not an attack on non African Americans or whatever, not but it's just it just happens, and you're like, what is going on here? And does everybody in this community? know what's going on here and are they prepared for it and, and what and what can we do to help them so i yeah. agree with mr james on that and marvin I, yeah. <laughs> I transi- transitioning to my next question because you started transitioning a little bit joe um was two things because i think it happens a little bit in the hispanic community but you don't see it as often it's not as i'm not seeing it as much in the forefront because it's the same concept in, in philadelphia i can speak of because um I don't know as much about D.C. to speak on it. But in Philadelphia, they have their specific sects where you know when you, but you hit a certain corner, you in Hispanic City. So be a part mm-hmm. or go your way. Like, choose how you want to do this. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> with... <laughs> choose how you want to make it happen. But with all of these changes happening, my I think my main concern and one of my reasons why I was pushed to do this episode, no matter what people say, is because I did a little poll earlier... Um, uh, probably about two months ago, I did a little poll on Instagram, you know, how you could choose yes or no. And I had a few people was like, oh, I don't want to hear about gentrification. I was like, I don't care what people feel like. I'm putting this up here. Because people need to be informed. And so, the my next question more so is, how can we help the community? And the reason I'm saying this is because I straight told my parents. I'm the only child of old. I was, my, my parents were already older when they bore me. My dad was 41 um, on the day I was born. And it was his birthday. So, naturally, I was born with older parents. I said to them when I was, like, 12, 15, um, I was like, uh, so y'all do know this house is mine. <laughs> if y'all gonna make all these changes, update me, because I'm telling you now, and that was, like, 17, 18 years ago, this house is mine. And then when my grandfather passed down the street, um, I told my dad, I said, so what are you planning to do with the house? My mother was like, I think he wants to sell it. I said... Can we have a home meeting? <laughs> Can we have a before you sell this house? This is before.
before we got any Caucasian neighbors. Right. This right. was just something that was endearing to me because I realized a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people in the African-American community, because of being uneducated, become money hungry. And then mm-hmm. as soon as somebody gives them any type of deal, it can be a deal where their property is worth way more. But because they were given some form of a deal, they go ahead and take that money or they sell their house because they're like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I mm-hmm. understand the only property is worth. I'm not taking that away from it. I'm not taking that away from it at all. But I think that it's more so having the, t- the knowledge to own the property and to know how to maintain it. Because I have that is something I have told my parents and even my grandmother's house in North Carolina. I've met, I've found their people. I said, who is over the city? I need to know what's going on. And Kinston's a small town. What are y'all doing that's changing the culture of Kinston in the next 10 to 20 years? Because I want my grandmother's house that was built by my great-grandfather to still be here. I don't want nobody buying it. We'll remodel it. Give us give us a few years. <laughs> so I just want to hear the kind of the take of what you feel like needs to happen in our communities, um, where we are, where we have lived, of what can shift that thinking um, going forward or help us simply going forward. Joe, Marvin, y'all could choose. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, let me say this, like, across the board, the reason that, of course, and this alludes back to my earlier comment, which is that the reason that gentrification happens at the rate that it happens is, of course, number one, black people don't own their homes. A lot right? of people don't. Mm-hmm. We just, we naturally don't own our homes. And I want to be abundantly clear about why we don't own our homes. Go ahead. Because oftentimes we are given this broad stroke that number one, uh, black people don't want to own the homes that they're either renting uh, or that they don't want to have home ownership, which is fundamentally not true. Right. Um, while, of course, uh, the as millennials, that thinking has transitioned to where a lot of millennials in themselves, they don't want to own homes, they want to rent and want to be given the option to be able to leave, go, uh, be wherever they are, whether it be work, family, whatever your movement is for renting, right? That there are systematically a lot of reasons why black people don't own. Uh, in the city of Baltimore, Wells Fargo had to literally settle a $100 million suit, over a $100 million suit, because it was not um, that they a discrimination lawsuit because they were discriminating against African-American and uh, Latino minorities against actually uh, providing them with home ownership opportunities, right? This is not, um, black people are not sitting at home wanting to pay rent for the rest of their life. Our, grandmother, right. our grandfathers have told us because one of the things that they felt as though was the one thing that nobody could take away from us are our homes. Right. And my grandmother, my grandfather, my father, my mother, they talked to us about home ownership. The difference was that um, there were so many outside dynamics that they either weren't aware of, um, could have the foresight of to understand, right, that home ownership uh, will become a, a home ownership and the process of it is a major barrier. So black people absolutely want to own their homes. Uh, gentrification is happening at their rate because we do not own our homes. Mm-hmm. I can assure you that if more black people own their homes, 
uh, in the uh, urban areas of where gentrification is happening, gentrification would not be happening. <laughs> um, it just would not be happening at the rate that it's happening. happening the rate. Right. Uh, right, and so uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is, is this, so I don't haul up the time, is, is that- You're fine. You're fine. Right, <laughs> is that if we, if we really do believe in gentrification, uh, not usurping or taking away the cultural dynamics of a community. Your local city council, your city government, your county government, local municipality, state government, and your federal government will actually provide either zoning laws or they will create uh, actual um, laws that will help with affordable housing. Uh, we are providing $63 million TIFs, and uh, TIFs are, um, you know, incrementing financing for basically developers to come in, they build lots of condos, they come in, they build them. Uh, and then what ends up happening is, is that we have these kind of, you know, very watered down type of affordable housing zoning things. And so um, in the city of Atlanta, I was reading today about a project that's happening where uh, the no one has experienced gentrification like the city of Atlanta. Um, places that were absolutely just off the chart, just nowhere, you couldn't find nobody outside that was African American. They are being gentrified right. at this very point. And what we see is, is that the city government is trying to institute uh, zoning laws that will help provide affordable housing for those persons that are in those communities, if they want to own, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. we have options to be able to make affordable gentrification something that is plausible, right? Uh, but we have to be able to help and develop uh, advocacy in those communities so that they are aware of what's going on. Right. And the only way that we do that is, and what we've seen is that we can't put that all in the hands of the developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we absolutely have to have advocates speak up and make sure that when we provide, mind you, tax dollars to developers to come in and, uh, and to come in and build, that there are absolutely parameters around that, so that they are not just building without accountability. Mm-hmm. Um. So I I 100 agree with that. I think that. Um, the beauty of developing in the United States is that um, no matter what zoning in any community, if people want to be there, if, if the economics drive you there, the developer will adjust. Um, so I don't take much credence in a lot of developers is like, uh, you know, oh, if you pass that law, then nobody's going to develop. If you pass that law, nobody's going to develop. Everything they've ever passed, raised property taxes, height limits, you know, zoning processes. Like once the economics become um, advantageous enough, then they will adjust accordingly. Um, you know, DC went from basically doing um, city deals with no affordables in it, then 10%, then 20%. Now they're up to 30%. Mm-hmm. And the developers just keep on trucking, you know. So it's definitely not you know, this is the end and this is the tipping point. If you do this, then, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, what I have seen not, and I would love to get um, Mr. James's feedback on this, um, not be as successful is protecting cultural and retail um, facilities. Uh, because I just don't think that most institutions have kind of figured that out. I think most institutions, if they really sit back and look at the whole landscape, all of them, whether you're Atlanta, Columbus, Jacksonville, Macon, Georgia, you should be implementing right now affordable housing, you know, parameters um, in order to to make sure that this thing um, is a little bit more even. But I, I would say the best of intentions have struggled with providing that ability to keep the cultural there. Mm -hmm. um, because in some of these instances, like, so, so, so imagine parts of DC, large swaths of DC, uh, I think there was a study, large swaths of DC are now developed, were originally owned by, most of it was owned by the city. Secondly, it was owned by nonprofits and third, it was owned by churches, right? Mm -hmm. So all that stuff has been redeveloped, but none of those institutions took heart to say, I have. I'm in the driver's seat here. I can tell these people what they what what, what they need to do, right? And then, sort of in the later half, to Miss um, uh, Marvin's point, um, they started implementing these affordable housing parameters, and now they're starting to institute these cultural or retail parameters. And developers just come back and say, "Yeah, I can't find a local business. Oh, yeah, I can't. You know, <laughs> whatever it is, right? And I'm I'm not. You know, like I said, I'm not casting aspersions. Maybe they can't find. Maybe they can't find them in their network. Maybe they're, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, you know, these businesses need some more support from the city. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard to be like, you know, 20% of your retail needs to be reserved for for local businesses with less than two locations. Like, D.C. does stuff like that. And then people just come back five years later like, yeah, it's still empty. Can I put, like, a CVS there? And they're like, yeah, sure. You know, right, and I, right. like I said, you know, that 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 thing I think still hasn't been figured out. I think the other piece um, of what um, citizens do, I keep going back to institutions because I think a lot of institutions feel powerless. And particularly um, given that, you know, I worship at a, a black Baptist church and a lot of the churches feel powerless. The, the neighborhood is closing in around them and they, they don't realize the power that they have, that they mm. still have and recognizing, making politicians recognize the power of those collective institutions is important because what happens is now you're a black church surrounded by people that are not from Washington, D.C., no matter what color they are, right? right. And they, it, all of a sudden, the politicians are listening to them more than this church that's been there for 50 years. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so somehow trying to figure out how to collectively you know, push that agenda um, because I think they just feel like, you know, I mean, you, you, you said it earlier, Marvin, it just take these, these people for granted. They're like, oh, you know, most of these, a lot of these cities are run by African Americans. They're going to always vote for me. They're going to always vote for me. Well, maybe not, you know? No, true. <laughs> you know? Whereas true. they feel like they have to convince the newcomer to vote for me. Look, I'm pro-development. I'm pro-whatever. And the old people, they don't have any choice. They will always vote for me. Or they won't vote at all. I've even heard politicians say that oh, they won't vote at all. So I don't really care what they think. So that would be my two cents. Um, just to augment what Marvin said, because I think that was it was eloquently said. 
James, do you have any feedback? James, Mr. James. Yeah, no, I mean, there, to directly answer your question, of course, is that oftentimes, of course, and this is just what we're speaking about, the term of, modern term of justification, right, right, which is whitewashing. Right. And um, because of that, uh, the belief that gentrification is equated to whitewashing uh, communities, um, specifically minority communities, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that there can be no balance between uh, the fact that you have persons who want what you have in geographical location, uh, plus uh, the cultural happenings within your community. Right. And so it really is about if when gentrification is or about to happen, really about actually investing in those communities uh, before, during, mm -hmm. and after you decide to build. Mm -hmm. As much as we like to create this to be like this is a rocket science uh, type of ordeal, it it's really isn't. Right, right of this conversation will always be the fact that there is lack of development in our urban communities. Mm -hmm. Now, let me be very clear. Gentrification is absolutely happening, but it's not happening at the rate that people actually, that as uh, my uh, democratic counterparts uh, would love to say. Uh, it's absolutely happening in major areas, mm -hmm. uh, but I can assure you that- It's not happening, man. Uh, is you know not happening in uh, you know uh, the Delta Mississippi, yeah. right? Just it's, it's not. Um, but that's why that's so important to that conversation. Just as much as they like to move that out, it's just as important. Right. Which is that if this is so important to you to have the option to build, create, do. We're not saying that we don't want those things. We absolutely want to have a Whole Foods in our community. Mm -hmm. We absolutely want to have Chick-fil-A in our community. Definitely. We absolutely want to have all of the institutions that are normally associated, right, uh, with quote-unquote uh, suburban or um, industrial certain economic right. class uh, status, mm -hmm. right? We want those things. However, there has to be investment inside those communities before it happens. Uh, it's just, there's no way that you can work around that, right? There are businesses that you can talk to. Of course, you're from DC, I'm from Baltimore, you're from uh, Philly, Janelle, that literally will tell you and will provide you with stories about how they felt like, of course, as business people, Gentrification was going to be great for them, right? Right, right, right. Afford services, right? More people that could afford services. There were more people that were coming into the neighborhood mm -hmm. that absolutely they would benefit from it. Right. But what was absent from that conversation was the fact that culturally, the people that supported you, right, were those persons who you probably did not uh, value right. at the same level that you were going to value someone of a certain, you know, taste that. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really does come from not marginalizing these type of communities or creating an economic 
you know, um, stagnant um, atmosphere so that they can actually build and be great. That's what really all of that lends it. So I think to really believe that I don't want developer A or developer B, I work in politics. I mean, like, I know all of the developers in this right. are all going to come. They're all going to talk to us. We know these things. But it's really about um, providing that economic opportunity on the front end mm-hmm. so that um, people who are working 40, 50, 60 hours working two jobs, they can't come to your local community meeting. They just can't. They right. don't know what's going on. So it's like nobody knew, why weren't you at the local community meeting to know what's going on? Well, it's because they make seven seventy five at McDonald's and then they got to go to their second night audit job at the local Marriott where maybe they might make $9 an hour, right? And by the time they get home, they're tired. Right. They don't know what happened at the local community <laughs> right? So that's why when we have this conversation about gentrification, I'm so... Uh, and after about providing those um, those dynamics, mm-hmm. because they're absent from the conversation. Right. That's why this is happening. It's this is not rocket science. This is really A plus B equals C. This is good. Um, it's well, it's we, it's been almost an hour, and I said I wasn't gonna go past an hour. Um, so. Um, one thing I wanted to put out there while those, because there's a few people um, who have been watching, I know the numbers just dropped because it's getting later. Um, but one person I wanted to put out there was this a young man by the name of Greg Parker. Um, and he's in Philadelphia. And he's also working in Cleveland. Doesn't live in Philly anymore, but he literally flies home to do um, expo type summits, one on one teaching about how to fix up own property, go back and buy your grandma's house that maybe you grew up in. Go back and to buy certain properties in certain areas that have not yet been gentrified. It's literally a, a, a development that he has started and he's gotten other people to join on. And to be honest, James Judah Rogers actually told me about him. He was like, he did this mega summit downtown Philadelphia and asked all of these black people, if you want to register, if you want to learn how to, to own property, if you wanted to do blah, 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 blah. And so he's one of the few people that I know at this very moment who's trying to beat the people to it. Because North Philly is the next spot. West Philly and North Philly and Philadelphia are the next two spots. Mm-hmm. West Philly is already starting to happen. My mother got a white neighbor um, who strums his guitar. And I was like, okay, this is different. Um, <laughs> we weren't used to that. The person who lived there before them was a Muslim. So it, and an African-American Muslim, to be exact. So the dynamic of learning that... Um, made me more aware quickly and so when i learned of people like him who are doing things specifically to draw younger people who are interested in to maintaining the cultural part they want the change but they want to be present in the change and because like you said they can't make the community meetings it's like now you have to if you want to be a part of it or if you want to have any say so in it i feel like you the activist in you has to come up just a little bit find a way to make it work into your schedule i am a person that worked two jobs and I still was texting and hitting up people. Um, Mahari Yard is another guy in Philadelphia, literally building up facilities um, and building up properties before, because they had not come yet into 52nd Street. They're migrating their way back slowly. And so University of Penn is there, Drucks University is there, just like John Hopkins. There are areas that, that draw Caucasians that they now are taking over. They've, they've redeveloped and now they're drawing a new area 
and so of people and so they haven't reached 52nd street just yet um there is one property that's being redone currently so anybody who's listening you may have to be to be the person who becomes a little bit of an advocate and take the time to do it yourself you, it may take some research it may take some calls it may take some googles it may take some emails do what you need to do and what i did was on purpose start reaching out to people who were doing things in philadelphia who i know are doing things before it hits heavily because it's about to happen and mm -hmm. i can speak for philly because I, I watch out for my city i know i moved because of my own personal reasons but I watched out for my city and I was like, y'all need to pay attention. Mahari Yard is another person. Both of these young men you can find on Instagram or Facebook who are doing things in the community and they're trying to build it up before somebody comes and buys out their property. They literally are building up houses that have been vacant, selling them back to our community, making it available um, for us. As we're closing, if you have any last minute um, pieces you would like to share, um, anything takeaways that you think the those who are viewing are going to do because this show will be on SoundCloud um, and it'll be available on YouTube anything that you think anybody needs to learn and taking away and moving from this um, I thank you both for being a part of this episode and for sharing information that we all need to know about I, I think um, I think as you just hit on and, um, and Marvin hit on um, I do think it's important that um, our communities guard themselves, um, not in like a like I said, an aggressive or um, what do I say, uh, like uh, sort of xenophobic way, mm -hmm. right? Um, but in a way in which they are um, getting resources for their institutions, for their for their cultural institutions, for their religious institutions, for um, their schools, all of that stuff prior to. The gentrification because the stronger the community is that they come into and i've seen this in my own experience the stronger the community that the developer comes into the more they say they ultimately have so even mm -hmm. if this is true so going going to your point um um, um marvin i've developed is in in um in um communities where they didn't have a community you know group or anything like that but in some communities, they had them, and they were very strong. And like you said, like you come to the meeting, people work multiple jobs. There's not that many people here, but there are seven people that have just dedicated their lives. Like this is what I'm doing. doing. So you don't know how many people they represent. You like as a developer, I'm gonna sit down with these seven people because I don't know what's gonna happen, right? So <laughs> you know, so so and they had development communities, and they got themselves organized. So that those people, and most of those people are usually, um, kind of to what you said, Marvin, a lot of these communities are more diverse than we give them credit for. So you have the elderly that will be a part, and you have the, the business professional, you have the small business owner. Those tend to be the folks that are out front. But they are able, because most of the time they grow up in a neighborhood, they know sister such and such, they're able to get the opinions and say, this is what we want. And that I just found that to be the most effective um, way and then, um, like you said, like my neighborhood is an instance where um, there was. I think I think gentrification. I wanted to comment on what Marvin said about gentrification ownership versus rental. A lot of the neighborhoods, sort of in the center city, Dupont Circle, Logan Circle, those were high rental um, uh, uh, neighborhoods. Right. As it's moved closer to Columbia Heights, Petworth. Um, Brooklyn, all that, those tend to be high ownership African American. You see 
the type of gentrification you see there is very different, right? It's still happening, but it's a lot of families deciding, okay, we'll rent our basement. And so you'll see, you know, hey, there's a, a there's an African-American family above and there are white people below. Or they move out the house all together and they rent them to white people, and, but the ownership is still there. Yeah. And when it comes time to vote, the politicians are listening to the owners, right? <laughs> so it's so it's like a dynamic, um, and I wish we could get out ahead of that. But to uh, Marvin's point, Wells Fargo and Bank of America and all those other institutions already messed that up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. It has not stopped, right? So, so people always say, oh, red line is 1960, 1970. No, it's not. It's just different. True, <laughs> you know? true, so, true. So, but they've already put that groundwork for those that do own need to think about their options in a real way, kind of what you were saying, to say, I can rent this, I can fix this up, I know it's hard, I'm just not going to take the 400K and keep it moving because I can make a generational shift for my family by renting this out or whatever. So just wanted to say that as a closing. The New York Times did an article about a year ago on African-American family who were high net worth individuals, but made a conscious decision to live in urban centers that were would be considered uh, the opposite of where those certain net worth individuals would actually live. Mm-hmm. The reality of gentrification happening today is, is that, of course, going back to my earlier point, which is, is that Regardless of where you live, regardless of how much you make, is is that there absolutely has to be an inherent conversation about owning uh, versus renting. There is, and of course, the foundation of gentrification, it will always be whether or not we're actually providing economic development Mm -hmm. before it happens, but of course, uh, we live in a reality of not, you know, utopian society. Therefore, the best thing that we can really do is talk about owning versus renting. And of course, uh, people of color have so many barriers of entry uh, into ownership. However, though, we uh, in ourselves and minorities of us board have to make a very conscious decision about the fact that even as we ascend, Right, with education, even as we ascend into new tax brackets, mm-hmm. that about whether or not we're going to make a conscious decision and make a sacrifice That's the right, um, to live in these areas because people need to see right, the fact that uh, young boys and young girls need to be able to see right, the realtor that does well the lawyer that does well, the doctor that does well. It is very much a sacrifice. I would love to live in the county of Baltimore, right, in the metropolitan area, but I need to consciously to live in the city because I know that as I walk down the street, right, that young boy or that young girl that could never or might not ever come in contact with someone that is a young professional that makes a certain amount of money, right? For whatever reason, 
that is one of the sacrifices that I make so that they could see that person, right? We have to do those and we have to make those decisions as young professionals, especially as young professionals and people of color mm-hmm. on the front end because it's important uh, for them to see us. And so, you know, as we're navigating life and as we're figuring out things, and of course, that is easier said than done. Right. When you can make that decision, I ask and implore you to think about making that decision because you don't know that it is probably more important uh, to the overall goal of creating homogenous community and society. Right, uh, yeah. You actually think. Of course, there were a lot of sacrifices that uh, the people made. Right? They had to send their kids to private school, but they wasn't sending them to the, the local public schools. Right. right? And they had to absolutely uh, drive further for mm-hmm. to go to the local grocery store because they were in a food desert. Right. However, though, the ability for them to be in that community created and was the catalyst for things to happen that they weren't even aware of. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that because they were there that they were going to be divorced for the local people of color. And right. The- exactly. Yeah. Right? They didn't know that because they had their ability to control their schedule and they don't have to work 7 to 3 and 3 to 11 and then maybe a part-time shift of going Uber and Lyft, right. right, if they got a car, that they had the ability to be able to speak up for the person that wasn't the singer on the block who was not getting that trash picked up. Right. 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 You are the impetus, right, for change to actually happen in your society. So uh, as much as I love to put gentrification on everybody else, um, I am very much a believer that we do have the ability to create change. Uh, We just have to make uh, this thing called sacrifice all right well i am closing the show on this evening we went over an hour but this has been a great um enjoyable conversation i hope both of you guys have enjoyed being a part uh we have i have thank you so much for it (laughs) thank you and um now is one of you can decide who's going to pray and then uh, once the episode of course is available um on soundcloud other people will be able to see the full effect. Well, we hear the full effect. Um, it'll be on Southbound iTunes and um, Player FM alike. So, anybody want to share in prayer? I, I can do it. Um, so, if you both could bow your heads in prayer. Um, thank you, Lord, for uh, just bringing us here together uh, virtually. Lord, uh, we know that um, you are the repair of all breaches, as Isaiah says. And we know that you have a plan for all of us. Lord, thank you for the wisdom that was shared at this talk. And thank you for just making this fellowship, um, fellowship of like-minded people that come from uh, different directions. And you have made it such that we are here together. Hopefully that someone can get a word from us um, such that they can be inspired to do what is best in their community and do something different than they've done the day before. Or just to re re energize someone who's been working so hard in their community um, to, to, to do the right thing. Uh, further, I, I want to bless um, you to bless um, Mr. James and um, Elaine Janelle for what they do. 
um, and who they are and who you've uniquely created them to be. Uh, for we know that you have a great work in store for each of them. As they talk, I just see the wisdom that you begin to employ upon them. And we ask that your word go forth from them um, so that they can continue to change lives here on earth and upbuild your kingdom. Um, Lord, finally, um, I ask for safety across everyone who listens to this um, and their families and health and prosperity. For you know your plans are greater than we could ever imagine. Um, these blessings I ask in your name. Amen.